Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. It has been over two months since stay-at-home orders began being implemented as an effort to mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. The last two months have been unpredictable and have required adaptability as we all figure out how to work and learn and exist from home, isolate ourselves and deal with uncertainties. While many states across the country, including Pennsylvania, begin reopening efforts, a new set of uncertainties will compound the already existing stressors that many adults and children are facing. Dr. Will Miller recently presented to PSBA members during the May 14th installment of the keynote webinar series. Dr. Miller is a recognized and respected authority on coping with stress, interpersonal relationships, and organizational health. He has been a mental health professional for 30 years, researching issues related to social connection, isolation, and mood. He has particularly focused on the areas of anxiety and depression. As a certified trauma specialist who works with police, firefighters, EMTs, and other first responders, he is particularly interested in how these mental health concerns impact first responders. He is also a trained addictions counselor. Dr. Miller now serves as a social media professor at Purdue University. Today, we are joined by Dr. Miller to continue the conversation we began during the keynote webinar series. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Miller. It's a pleasure to be with you. Counties across Pennsylvania have begun to transition, as in many other states, to the yellow phase of their reopening plans. And and after that, they'll phase into green, presumably. But even with that yellow phase, our lives are, are going to look different than they did before the pandemic. What are some ways that folks can cope and transition into what we're knowing may be like our new normal? Uh, This gets to a pretty fundamental and well-researched theory in psychology, and it's called locus of control. Uh, Julian Rotter from UConn established this a long time ago. And it's pretty intuitive, almost like a range. There are some of us, individually or collectively, who cultivate an external locus of control, meaning that you really don't have any illusions. You have a lot of control over a lot of things. Now think about this writ large with what we've seen globally with people who are living in you know, really terrible circumstances, like you know, what we followed in Syria, for example. If you're a citizen or a person there, you have no illusion you have much control other than the most basic and elemental things, feeding yourself, taking care of your kids. The American psychological makeup is the opposite. We are We cultivate a strong... Uh, internal locus of control. We're doers, we're task-oriented, etc. So my answer to this question is, in this situation, it has flipped kind of on a dime where we are at the mercy of forces uh, that are outside of our control. So even though you know, you may be abiding and, and wanting to keep you and your family safe by social distancing, etc., the mitigation efforts. The fact of the matter is, there's a real uncertainty about what it means to come back out. I mean, what is the new normal? The new normal, it seems to me, still has kind of a, an umbrella of angst and uncertainty about control uh, hanging over all of us. I mean, it won't be until, and you can see why psychologically it's so important for all citizens to say, boy, if they get a vaccine, a reliable vaccine, that will kind of change the chemistry. But until then, I have to say, um, it's, it's going to be a difficult adjustment because we have to hang in the balance. And I think the only way to do that is to really be 
uh, connected to your people, to be you know supportive, to to stay in contact with each other. We are we are creatures that need to be connected, and even though we can't hug and shake hands, we can absolutely um, uh, engage uh, meaningfully with our relationships. And so, it's kind of the same as it ever was in that regard. But it is an adjustment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. How we're connecting has certainly changed quite a lot. Yep. So as children are returning to schools, the school buildings, when they do, what signs should parents be aware of that their children might be experiencing anxiety or mental health challenges? What, what are some of the signs or symptoms that educators and parents should be looking for? Okay, all parents, you know, my wife, Sally, has had a long career in education as an elementary school principal. And, you know, and so, uh, you know, she really has been down this road before with crises, for example. Mm -hmm. She and I were living in New York after 9-11, and she was very much involved with schools in dealing with, you know, helping kids in the aftermath of that. But, but here's the thing. Children are resilient, first of all. They are more resilient than the adults are so oftentimes because, well, let's face it, to say the obvious, the parents have the burden of caring for the kids where the kids mm -hmm. just have to be the kids. Right. And so uh, there's two things I would say about this. One is every parent knows at an intuitive level the personality of their children. You know, you know who's a little kind of unfocused. You know who's kind of the calm kid. You know who the kid who's an acting out kid. And you have had to manage that all along. And so you can probably predict when you see behaviors erupt uh, or just, you know, move along. You know what to do, first of all. As far as the children are concerned, they they are, they will bounce back from this. They will, you know, it's 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 a couple of months of something that was odd, but most parents I suspect have been keeping them busy, trying to do school online, mm -hmm. having them play, having them, you know, be engaged. Uh, and I can say that, um, I, I, and I trust Sally's instinct on this too, is that they will be more fine. Now, here's, mm -hmm. here's the key. There's another theory in psychology about the contagion of emotion. Hold on to this. It means that your emotion is uh, liable to, to feel the contagion of other people. So th the way they test this is you're in kind of a low mood but you walk into a room where everyone is happy and buoyant, it will lift your mood without you even thinking about it, or, or conversely, okay? If you're in a high mood and then you'll, all of a sudden you, you kind of come down. So kids are reactive to the mood of the parent, and sometimes the angst of a child is the contagion of the angst of the parent. To tell you the truth, I'm more concerned about the triage for the moms and the dads and their anxiety more than for the kids. It will have an impact on the kids, but you know that as well as I do. The intuition of children about the mood and firm footing of their parents, it's like radar. It's like a tuning fork. They, mm -hmm. they can sense it and they act on it. So if the children are acting out, you know, you have to do what you have to do, but just take a moment and kind of um, think about or reflect on, are they kind of feeling the contagion of my, what's my angst? How am I doing with this? You know, I've said, like I said in the, in the webinar, even before this crisis, 40 million Americans had a diagnosed anxiety disorder. That's a fraction of how many have anxiety. That's just mm -hmm. those who got it treated. And we know more about anxiety in psychotherapy than almost any other uh, psychological issue. We know what it is, we know what the triggers are, we know what the brain science is, and we know how to treat it. So my advice on this question is for do your duty, do your diligence, but really spend as much time on your own 
calmness and your own anxiety or depression as you do for your children. It, that's, mm -hmm. To me, that's the most important thing, I think. That's a critical distinction. I, I, I like that. So first responders experience crises as part of their profession, whatever that respective profession may be, with the staff and educators as sort of our frontline professionals in a school environment, what are some ongoing tactics that can be used to address high emotions among students and other staff? And, and you've sort of started that in the last question, you know, but once folks are back in the building, once students are back in the building, are there tactics kind of beyond what you've already covered that can be employed um, by the students and staff to kind of just maintain, you know, that calm? I, uh, I have become a certified uh, trauma specialist working with police, law enforcement, and, uh, and firefighters. And the science that we know, and a lot of this comes from an amazing guy. I think I might have mentioned this in the webinar. Uh, the Danish uh, psychiatrist from Harvard, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bezel van der Kolk. Mm -hmm. and, and basically what the, 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 the strategies are is, you know, talk therapy is an important thing. And, you know, teachers and staff do this all the time. You know, what's going on? So-and-so, how are you doing? But some of the most effective strategies have to do with physical triage. That is, it's going to be really important for the physical fitness program. It's going to be really important to have opportunities for the kids to be outside. It's going to be really important for kids to um, to, to do things like, and I know, I don't know how things are able to be done in schools, but not just physical fitness to, you know, for like, say, uh, cardio, but, you know, one of the reasons they talked to with uh, law enforcement people and soldiers about yoga is that yoga uh, is a very, very powerful and well-tested triage. So if you can either flat out, if your school is open to flat out doing some yoga with kids, or you can just sort of mimic some of the movements and stretches of yoga to just get your organism moving. Movement is important and being outside is really important, being in nature, okay? Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are the, and then of course, meditation, quiet time. And so these are all things I covered in the, but those are the three, I call them the MBM, the meditation, the breathing and, and the movement are the strategies that just lower your energy level. And so that's something that to the degree that you, teachers are incredibly creative. I mean, they really are, yeah. they're, they're amazing. And I know that armed with this research, they can think about, uh, is there anything I can do in my classroom or in my uh, program that would incorporate you know, it doesn't have to be meditation, sit at your desk, but it can be quiet time. It can be, <laughs> it can be time to just kind of decompress, but also um, to be open with counseling. I know that there are some kids whose issues are significant enough that they may need something pharmacological. You know, they, they may have medication or something like that with you when you have set up, you know, attention deficit or whatever. But there are organic strategies uh, for, for students and teachers that can just whew, quiet the mind, mm -hmm. quiet the mind. Mm -hmm. people, with a, people with a vivid imagination are more prone to anxiety than those without it because your mind, this frontal cortex is always buzzing, buzzing, buzzing and thinking and imagining. You know, mm -hmm. we're meaning making creatures and we imagine. What is it that we're imagining? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So social distancing has certainly been something we've hearing we're hearing a uh, lot about. um it's a prevalent method that's being used to mitigate the spread of this virus and in most cases this means isolating ourselves from friends and family 
So when we come out of isolation, you know, whatever phasing approach occurs and however rapidly that occurs, how, what will be the impact? How will this impact us when we've been in isolation and we're starting to kind of come out of it? What do you think that reaction will be? Well, because it's not an extended long time, it's a couple of months, the children, I think, will jump back into it. They'll talk about it. They'll laugh about it. They'll have some experiences. They will remember it forever. Uh, and and my, my, my concern for the systems and the adults is to be cautious that we could possibly have to go through something like this again. That's not something you need to share with the kids, mm -hmm. but kids are aware. You know, after 9-11, Sally and I were very involved with the mental health issues that were going on there, she especially with the schools. And one of the things that was true is that developmentally, for any of the teachers with kids under seven, say, uh, is to really protect them from any frightening experiences. I mean, they, you know, they, 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 the brain has, has not been able to develop meaning-making to kind of come past that. And so uh, keeping them calm, reassuring them that they're safe, reassuring them that the adults in the room and their parents and everyone else in the community have their interest first and foremost, and you will be protected and we'll, we'll get through this. Hey, you know, you don't even have to say this, but we could go through this again in the fall if there's another bout of this, but mm -hmm. you know how to do this and we know what to do. So it, it will be okay. Just the reassurance yeah. uh, is really key for kids. Yeah. And, and the adults. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, okay, particularly, you know, as we are physically separated, we are communicating in different ways and there's various digital channels of communication that are perhaps being even more heavily utilized than they were before. And I'm going to mention social media as one of those. So, you know, social media, lots of information gets exchanged through that forum, some accurate, some inaccurate, some opinion-based, some fact-based. But what are, what are kind of some of the pros and cons of social media in these current circumstances and with respect to, you know, the student population? How can parents and edu educators mitigate any of the negative sides of, the, of that? This has been an overwhelming development, and it's near and dear to my heart. I teach this uh, social media in the graduate program at Purdue, and my colleague at Purdue, Glenn Sparks, and I wrote a book uh, that just got reissued about a year ago called Refrigerator Rights. And I don't know if you know what they are, but it's a look at the sociology of media and technology and communication. And basically what it says is between the American tendency to relocate, think about all of your communities in Pennsylvania, the percentage in every community that represents those who've been there for five generations versus those who've moved in and out. Right. Kids grow up and they leave. We are mobile to say the least. So when we leave and we land in our new place, we have a very difficult time reforming relationships that replicate a family. And the way we define those is, let's say, if Sally and I came to you in your home and we never met each other and we were just sitting there in the kitchen and, you know, in a couple of minutes without knowing you or me, I went to your refrigerator and looked around in there. That's It kind of brings a picture to mind. Who is in your life, the people who you see all the time, are comfortable enough and intimate enough as friends or family that they can go into your refrigerator, they can, they can be in your space. Mm -hmm. That is a real crisis in American life. And, and to say something gloomy, 45,000 suicides and 60,000 opioid overdoses, which are essentially suicides, mm -hmm. are the result of this social isolation and disconnection. It's not lost on Glenn and I. The irony about after cautioning uh, using only social media versus real face-to-face -face connection in this crisis, guess what? 
it has become an opportunity to mitigate some of what was bad about social media. In other words, kids can FaceTime, they can be on Zoom, they can see the mugs and the faces of their buddies and their kids and their family. And that has helped us. Uh, can you imagine without social media, if you were just confined in your house with no outlet whatsoever? I mean, as it would have been not very many years ago. So what has been a challenge and a problem for social scientists and psychologists has become uh, a tool that has facilitated this because when the kids get back live, oh yeah, uh, the last time I saw you was online. That said, let me just add the obvious caution and that is trolling the internet in place of connecting with people is obviously has negative consequences. And so uh, social media use has to be monitored. It has to be, you know, overseen, not just for the content, but for the hours being spent on it. And so all the more reason when we can open up, you've got to prompt the kids to get out and be with each other to the degree that they can, even with social distancing. But it is an amazing irony that this tool, which has caused so much angst and worry, uh, all of a sudden stepped into the breach to help. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's completely true. It's interesting. Yeah. More yeah. screen time than ever right now, you know? That's right. Mm -hmm. There's students uh, in the schools who have strong relationships with their school counselors and, and had strong relationships prior to the school closures. Some school counselors have been working and been able to maintain communication with those students. What is the importance of maintaining these relationships despite not being able to be in the building, or is it as critical if they are physically not in the building? Well, you know, when, you, when it comes to talk therapy, I mean, you know, I'm a practicing therapist and my practice has had to move to online. And, there, and, and you know, it is, when it's visual and you can see the person like in a Zoom type setting, uh, it can be very, very effective for the student and, you know, the client, if you will, uh, and the counselor. And so the issue here is going to be the same thing as it is with all first responders. I mean, any frontline nurse, doctor, firefighter, police officer, etc., is overwhelmed by the sheer numbers that are happening. And that may be the case for some period of time for the school counselors. You know, they have a, uh, you know, they have a uh, a work rhythm where they see X number of kids and any council will tell you, oh, brother, this year was really tough or whatever. Um, you know, I've, I've been kind of overwhelmed. But all counselors know the population of their school and they know which kids are at risk or which kids are kind of like, you know, acting out that they have to intervene. What will happen, obviously here, there are some kids who were not on their radar at all, but who in fact will now you come to their attention because they are having symptoms, okay? I strongly urge every school counselor to really focus on, on the anxiety issue and the depression issue. And now think about this. The anxiety issue is about uh, your mind kind of whipping up and, you know, you lose your focus. It's like, here's how I talk about it. Uh, if you know anything about a car engine, you know that the idle, the idle of the engine is, has to be kind of monitored, okay? If the idle's too high, you know, you, you're racing, or if it's too low, you can stall. Think about that, maybe poor analogy to think about anxiety and depression. Depression is the more worrisome thing because its symptom is withdrawal. And so my urge for counselors and teachers or teachers who have to connect kids with counselors, they know who the anxious kids are. And, and what needs to be done with the family. Worry a little bit more about the kids who are isolating, especially in the high schools, because the isolation uh, is the far more dangerous uh, because 
you have to go and prod them out of it. And that's my counsel for teachers, counselors, and parents as well. The anxiety needs to be sort of flattened or mitigated, if that's uh, the right term these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but, de but depression has to be called out. It has mm -hmm. to be called out. One of the ways that when I was talking, you know, I, I just did webinars for the engineers at Purdue, and they are famously stereotypically, you know, just kind of, they tend to be more withdrawn, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, and low affect. And what I've told them is that um, if you have a roommate or a friend who you suspect is depressed, as in they're sleeping all the time, they're, you know, on the internet all the time, they're not communicating, is to, and I tell them, think like a shrink is my, is my mantra. <laughs> you know, how would a therapist you know prompt them? I notice that you're sleeping all the time. I mean, you, are you okay? I mean, is that working for you? And do you think it would be better if you had some time connected to me? Can we talk about this? And to just urge and tweak them out of that to be connected, because that's the triage. And again, if, if, if med medication is in order, it's important. So that's a long-winded answer to the question. Um, but counselors, counselors know the anxiety kids. They sometimes are a little, the kids at risk for depression are a little bit more invisible. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's something to be cautious about. Yeah, that's a good distinction to know. Where can our listeners uh, learn more about some of what you've highlighted here? Where can they go to hear more about okay. it? Well, I, um, I have a website, drwill.com, that has links to my, um, my YouTube channel, which uh, offers a couple of uh, videos uh, each week, you know, anywhere from two to five minutes uh, on mental health and on these very issues. Uh, and as a therapist for a long time, I, I think I have a lot to share. Uh, and uh, I would, you know, people can reach out to me there. Great. Okay? That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We've learned so much from you in these last, uh, the webinar and now today's conversation. Really appreciate this. It's been a privilege and thank you for what you're doing. And uh, you guys are my heroes. I, I really, you know, you're the, you're the frontline people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by Crabtree, Warbaugh and Associates and ESS. Visit our website at keyadradio.org for more information on today's discussion and past episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.